Welcome to episode number 33 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, this is our first post, our first post PHP Tech 2013 podcast. That was a mouthful to say. I should have thought about that before I planned it, Ed. That was a mealy mouth. Yeah, it was kind of mealy mouth. So I apologize. Episode number 33, double tray, tray tray, whatever you want to call it. I actually got it right because I made sure to ask Ed before we started. So we are live on a Sunday night, uh, Eastern time, and we have a whole bunch of people in the channel here on Freenode. Uh, I would, I would point a mic at the crowd so we could hear their applause, but of course this is radio and they're not with us. Hello, Cleveland. That's what it, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's that's if you'd imagine it. It's the, it's the sound of one hand fapping is what it yeah, is. That's gross. Well, we got to start off on the right foot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we have some exciting news on the sponsor front. We have uh, secured uh, Engine Yard yet again as an awesome sponsor for the show. So thank you, Engine Yard. Yay. Throw us some money. I look forward to spending my half on a brand new chair to get rid of the super squeaker that I have relegated off to the side. I'm doing the podcast in stand up mode today as to not have all those, not to curse Ed with trying to filter out squeaks in uh, post production. Yeah, I stopped trying to do that. Oh, did you? Also, some of them are in there. That's all right. Um, so, yeah, so special thanks to Engine Yard. Fine, fine purveyors of platform as a service. I, w- I have to say, though, I was going to say when I heard that they were killing off Orchestra in favor of some other thing that's essentially doing the same thing, but I guess it just has different branding around it. But if you're into the platform as a service, you want like a nice little scalable sandbox to run your applications in, whether they are Ruby, Node, and PHP. Um, check them out. They're friends of the show. I highly recommend them. I know some of the people that work there and they are, they are good people. And uh, Ed, you will be speaking at engine yards distill conference in what about two months or so in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. In August uh, 8th and 9th, they're having a conference in San Francisco and I'm going to that. Apparently I was just, uh, I think they just sent me my flights. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. In which talk or talks are you doing? Uh, the I'm crazy and I know it. Nice, nice. Um, I saw the one yeah. at Tech. It was awesome, Ed. Even though I had to duck out to deal with some family craziness of my own, but uh, mm-hmm. from what I saw, you did an awesome job. Several times I wanted to go up there and give you a big hug and tell you it was all going to be okay. Did I start crying a lot? I don't remember. Uh, you cried a little. Blacked bit. out a little. Bit. Uh, no, you cried a little bit, but uh, you were quite quite emphatic, and I thought it was a really awesome talk. I cried angry tears of yes, vengeance. yeah, they were yeah angry tears. Not like not feeling sorry for yourself. You're more like just people don't understand and people don't want to understand. Is kind of the message I was I was thinking you were saying. I do feel uh, sorry for myself a lot, but I don't think I was right at that point. No man, you're more angry than anything else. There you go. Yeah, but it was. I mean, I I thought it was good. Uh, so let's get started with uh, tonight's episode. So if I look at our awesome uh, pirate pad that we have set up right now. We have duh, 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 four things we're going to talk about. So let's try to keep these things to like 15 minutes a piece. Uh, and that way we can all get out of here at a decent time for bedtime. Because both Ed and I being cranky guys, we uh, we need our sleep. Uh, yeah, I know. Just to recover from the uh, uh, emotional expenditure of being grumpy about everything. It's hard to do. All right. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, you mentioned on Twitter earlier in the week uh, about Go. And you're talking about Rust. From Mozilla and Go. Oh yeah, and, mm-hmm. and you're and you were talking about uh, uh, how you felt like you couldn't trust Google because Go being the major back, backer of it, and that triggered a very like series of very angry and aggressive uh, instant messages that I sent you. <laughs> uh, right. 
that culminated in you kind of say, dude, I'm not like, I'm not having a good day. And you're like piling on. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay. Well, I was like, well, I still think you're wrong, but let's talk about it on the podcast. So, um, so, so I wanted to talk about this a little bit. So let's talk, let's talk about from your perspective first. So when you're comparing rust and go, you said you didn't like go because of Google. So why don't you kind of expand on this a little bit about your feelings on what basically say what you said to me via instant message. Well, I, I guess the thing is, I, I think the first thing I should say is that on Twitter, what I really said was, I'm less interested in Go because of Google. And I'm not, I, I should say that it's, I, it's not an entirely logical argument to say, uh, oh, well, it, because, you know, they have this uh, percentage of being jerkies. Uh, that's why I'm not going to be interested in it. No, it's just that I think, Google as an organization has uh, done um, a lot of stuff that kind of sucks uh, lately. Um, in the grand scheme of things, is it like Pol Pot level sucks? No, but it's <laughs> like, uh, well, I, gee, I wish you hadn't done that kind of stuff. I think we found the title for the podcast already, Pol Pot level sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, just turning off dev resources that they've had for a while, generally seeming like they're less of sort of an engineering driven company. And that's kind of a, and I, I don't know, maybe that's just what happens. I don't know. It's just, but it's kind of a bit of a bummer to see all that. And I, and, and in a sense, I just, I guess I feel like I sort of don't trust Google to do the open and engineer slash developer friendly thing anymore. Right. And so I would say that six or seven years ago, I did. So at this point, it's kind of uh, more the case that, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, Go exists fairly independently of Google, that it came out of Google, but there's plenty of people who, who say contribute to it who are not, who are not Google employees and it doesn't, it doesn't exist just to serve, say, Google. Um, and that's all fine and dandy. Um, but, I think maybe it's just the fact that it's so associated with Google now. Like if I ever read a story about it and, and partly is because I'm not actively involved in the Go community. I just, I feel it from the outside that people always refer to it as Google Go, not just the Go language. And I, I'm trying to think of an, it, it's, it's kind of like, uh, finding out that there was something cool that you liked, but a guy who you think is kind of a jerk started it it sort of makes you less interested in it. And I'm not sure I have a great analogy for it. I was going to say something like, boy, this is really good ice cream, but it turns out that Chris Brown owns the ice cream company or something like that. And uh, that's obviously hyperbole, but um, it's uh, yeah, it just kind of turns me off. And I guess what I was really getting at was not that it it wasn't a, a critical examination of the chances that Google's going to, you know, screw everybody with this. It's more like the na- like the association with Google makes me less interested in it than I would have been if it was just some uh, some a company I didn't know. And and I guess maybe more I was more sort of commenting, you know, and this is something I don't think we had actually gotten to in this conversation, but I was more commenting that nowadays something being associated with Google is sort of a negative for me as opposed to I would say six, seven, eight years ago, it was more kind of a positive. Fair I enough. guess that's kind of how I, yeah, I think that's kind of how I feel about it now. Uh, I, yeah. 
I mean, the, the way that I look at it is, yes, Google has done a lot of douchey things and closed down services, but those have all been services. I cannot, I, I mean, maybe somebody else on the channel can tell me this, but I, I, I cannot think of an example where there's been something that Google has created that they've open sourced and released to the public that people can actually make changes to and send those changes back that they have killed. As far as I know, it's only services, Google reader. Um, now they're doing all this bullshit with um, shutting down XMPP bridging to G to G talk to force everyone to go through Google plus and do Google hangouts. So that's a case of where they control the service. Therefore they can shut it off. But with go being out there, are the majority of people who contribute to go working for Google? I believe that's the case. But the language is not dead. If Google, if nobody at Google was allowed to contribute to it anymore, people could still take it, fork, fork it, grab the sources, and continue to um, continue to improve uh, on the on the project and push it forward. And so, someone in uh, uh, like Adam in IRC said something interesting: is that if Go was being backed by like Facebook or GitHub or or if, or if Go was a Microsoft project. Would you feel any differently about uh, wanting to like Go? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, he lists Facebook, GitHub, Microsoft, or Etsy. I would say two of those I would probably be as equally worried or slightly more, and two of those I would be I would be probably more interested. Um, uh, Facebook actually does a lot of cool stuff, but I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't necessarily you know they they. They changed their uh, tech so much that I wouldn't necessarily think that the the, the, the uh, project is going to have a, a great lifespan. Although they've certainly had things that have had a good lifespan outside of it. Uh, GitHub, I feel would feel more confident in. It. I'd probably be more excited. Microsoft, I, I probably view Microsoft slightly less negatively than, than Google <laughs> at this point. Wow. But um, but um. Uh, Microsoft has one. I don't think Microsoft would have developed the language in the same way. Um, well, tied to Windows for sure. I mean, that's the big, big right. Difference. And they've done so. I mean, they've allowed implementations of like C Sharp off of Windows, so it's not a huge thing. And they've got other languages that they do in there, but um, they have killed off stuff that was well, it wasn't open. It was say stuff that they had pushed hard, uh, like Silverlight. They killed that off. I think right. their Windows Forms. That was another thing that they they, mm-hmm. they had pushed for a while, and then basically said uh, we're going to go in that direction anymore. And they probably have good reason for it, but that's kind of one of the problems you have when you sort of buy into a stack that's controlled by one entity. Um, you, you mean a, you mean a, a closed stack, like one that you can't modify? A closed stack. I mean, I think now. I think there's open. There have been open stacks that were clearly only controlled by one entity, and even though it was open, it does. It's it realistically without the backing of that that organization, it's going to be dramatically reduced. And I like a lot of the, you know, uh, Adobe. Uh, yeah, they open sourced the Flex stuff, but they, you know, they essentially dropped it, and and I don't think it's it's ever going to be the same kind of deal. Um, I I would say, and I think the reason why I brought up you know Rust was it's sort it I, I, they're not 100 percent equivalent, but they're sort of both kind of like they're compiled languages, but sort of have a cleaner syntax that's fr- that's maybe friendlier to people who are more used to interpreted languages, um, and I have way more confidence in 
Mozilla, because that's sort of a core part of their culture is keeping things open. Although for what it's worth, Mozilla has not always, you know, done a, you know, they, they open a lot of stuff and that doesn't guarantee that they're always going to continue supporting it forever and ever, but they at least keep it open. Right. Um, so, uh, so I will say that if you, if you showed me, if all things were equal and they were equal languages, then they're, they're not go certainly has, I think a larger community is a more mature language. Um, but if they were identically, you know, sort of on the same level, they were equal. Uh, I would be more interested in a language that will say supported by that had been started and came out of Mozilla than one that came out of, of Google, you know, for the reasons I talked about. Um, but you know, that's, uh, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm just talking about my personal feelings and, and it's, it's at the end of the day, it's really just a matter of a brand. And I, and I have more of a negative association with Google as a brand now than a positive one. So, uh, you know, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it is kind of a shame that Google is determined in many ways to piss away all the good support that they have from people. But I guess this is what happens when business realities intrude, right? There's they have they have overarching goals as a organization on the business side they want to do. So um I mean me, like I said, the angry IMs I sent to you were basically that I thought it was dumb to judge um a programming language based on the company that's supporting it, because um, uh, I mean, I wonder what the perception outside of the PHP community is about Zen, whether people think that uh, mm. PHP is a corporate back thing because of Zen. And those who use PHP know that that's probably not even close to how it really works. Zen does not have very many core contributors to the language. In fact, the last involvement that Zen had with PHP was, some would say, basically the ramming through of the addition of uh, Zen Optimizer to 5.5 to kind of be a replacement for APC. So um, in that respect, it's right. kind of interesting that Zen proclaims itself to be the PHP company, but in terms of the language itself, it doesn't do a whole lot anymore except to kind of throw its weight around when it wants something. You know, when they want something mm-hmm. added to the language. Uh, it's good that they don't seem to go too far down the um, weird and incompatible extension road, And but, you know, because they are staying kind of true to the trying to give things back kind of ethos. But, but to get back, as we got, I don't know, about two or three more minutes before we need to move on. I mean, I've started looking at Go... Um, at Cinecore, uh, there's a bunch of people internally who like it. They're even trying to uh, use a few pr- prototypes, uh, try a few um, services in Go. So it's kind of right. nice to have. And it's nice because if you ever want to do anything, I know I've got lots of people I can talk to about it. I just think uh, it was interesting that none of the talk at work about Go, Google never came up at all. It was just kind of like, well, here's Go. And there's a bunch of resources and people gave. We have our little dev tricks thing where um, every other week, there's a lunch hour on a Tuesday where people will do small little presentations on things. And so they tie it to, um, it's also often tied to people's like, uh, development goals for the year, you know, so they can hit their bonuses and everything else. So they're like, I want to speak right. to dev tricks. I've spoken a couple of times. So I, I watched two little presentations on Go and it was, uh, to me, it was kind of interesting. Um, cause it's server side language. It was, uh, compile language, which I haven't really worked much with and Go kind of has static typing, but it's a little bit, different 
Um, but to me, it was kind of interesting seeing, and also you always get that good feel The you get jazzed up by people that, you know, who are enthusiastic and passionate about a subject. So you can kind of hear it in the way that they're describing when, and when you just mention something that you're thinking about doing something and go like, I'm, I'm thinking of as a good way to dive into it, to write, um, an IRC bot in go, um, right. just, just something that's somewhat relevant and not super trivial, like not hello world. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff you kind of have to have to um, kind of sketch out and think about when you build an IRC bot. You're dealing with events and all this other stuff. So I thought it'd be a good experiment. As soon as I said that, I got bombarded by people. Say, oh, you should look at this. You look at this and look at this. So kind of the passion around people who want to use a specific tool, I thought was kind of nice. And you do kind of see that with every single tool out there. But so, you know, the too long didn't read. I think it's, I think it's dumb to, uh, criticize a language because of who the backer is. If it's a good tool, if it fits your mindset and provides you with value, then this is the same. This is the same argument that people have about why PHP is good or Ruby or whatever. It's like if it solves a job, if it solves a problem for you, you shouldn't feel any shame in using it. Yeah, I guess I know what you mean. I I think it's hard for me, and my my uh, I guess conclusion is that it, for me, it's sometimes hard to separate the emotional. Uh, sort of, uh, I guess not attachment is the right, but what emotions I have attached to something. And it's kind of like, I'll admit that one of the reasons I've no less, I, I never got excited about dealing with Rails was because I didn't like how, you know, it was represented by some of its, its lead developers. And, uh, or, you know, and that kind of stuff turns me off from things. And even though, no, it's not a, it's not a logical, uh, assessment of it purely in a, in a, uh, a utilitarian fashion, but it's still the association I have with it. And, uh, you know, the reason why I do this stuff, the reason why I'd pursue a language is not entirely utilitarian. A lot of it has to do with whether I'm excited about doing it or not. And that excitement, is is ultimately an emotional thing for me so you know yeah that's just where i am some people some people are able to you know they don't understand why i would feel that way and uh but i kind of do yeah that's just that's me i guess oh yeah we have dueling uh, irc bots in the channel now i know that uh matthew turland has fergie hanging out in the channel with us here and then matt frost put his uh bot frost delicious into the uh channel oh, nice. frost delicious the only job these days is to tell us about baseball scores which is kind of cool all right, let's move on to the next topic. So people who follow me know that I've been spending money on eBay uh, buying uh, Magic the Gathering cards to build up my set so I can have something decent to play with. And you have been spending your money on eBay and other sources on vintage computer stuff and consoles. So why don't you talk about what you've been doing with that? Because, I mean, I find that super interesting. So people on the channel, they better find it interesting too. Yes, they had better. Um, I guess a little background. I have been, uh, I guess, like a lot of people, uh, when they were kids, I uh, was really into video games. Um, you know, I remember playing uh, Space Invaders on the Atari uh, over at a friend's house in, like, this would have been, like, say, 1980, um, and how awesome that was, and arcades, and I've really, like, just the, uh, I guess the, the that nostalgia, that that emotional connection I have to that is is pretty strong. Uh, you know, as a kid and growing up in that and being really into that stuff. Um, 
I uh, got a Commodore 64 when I was a kid and uh, played with that. But I was really, I was never a programmer really with it. I just like playing games. <laughs> and uh, that was the stuff I was interested in. Um, and the, I definitely, I never got one, but I lusted after a Commodore Amiga. Never got one of those, but I used to buy magazines about it, stuff like that. And with video game stuff, I was, you know, I was somewhat into Nintendo. Uh, but I really got into things with the Sega Genesis and that sort of, that 16 bit stuff. Um, so Turbo Graphics and, 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 uh, SNES and stuff like I that. Mean, I and, always wanted a Turbo Graphics machine. Yeah, right. Well, um, I used to read magazines a lot about that. I used to buy uh, magazine, video games, computer entertainment, and there were a couple others that were on the market there in like the late eighties. Um, like uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly started in the late eighties. I think I still have the first issue of that someplace nice. around here. Um, VGCE. Uh, there's a couple other ones that didn't stick around. GamePro came around around that period and did stick around for a long time. Uh, anyway, um, so I used to I used to really be into that. I used to buy magazines and read about that stuff. I certainly couldn't afford like buying all these games and hardware and and, and stuff like that. But I liked. I really enjoyed reading about it. Um, and uh, when I was say 14, I guess it was, uh, I started doing a fanzine about the Sega Genesis. Uh, called the altered beat <laughs> and it started off as just like uh yeah i know corny right uh altered beast w- that was like the big game yeah, on that exactly it was, it was yeah it was it was the packing game in the u.s uh when it was released um and it uh and i t- i originally typed it up on a typewriter a, a mechanical typewriter nice two sides uh two pages two sides each um, photocopied it and sent it out to people. This was before I had any internet access or anything like that. And, um, my parents, uh, I still don't understand why they forgave the hundreds of dollars of phone bills that I had for long distance phone calls, uh, talking to people about video games and people who are in fancy and stuff like that. I couldn't talk. There was, you know, we, I get, there were things around there. There were systems like, uh, you know, CompuServe and junk like that, but I didn't, I hadn't gotten into that and I didn't have any internet access. So the only way I did it was you did it via the mail or you talked on the phone. Um, so the, but the short version is that I was really pretty into game, video games and stuff like that, especially during that period, that sort of fancy period that predates the internet. Um, and, I, so I continued to be pretty interested in it and I would sort of, I would collect stuff as I actually, you know, say became an adult and got a job and, 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 and would buy stuff. But for a long time, I really didn't have any space to, 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 to set stuff up, uh, or do things with it. Um, and really what sort of inspired this latest, uh, uh, round of excitement about it was that we moved into a new place that has way more space and, um, it allowed me to, well, one, I got to see stuff that I like forgot I even had. Right. Um, uh, and I, uh, and that was really cool going back, finding old fanzines, magazines, uh, things from old, like consumer electronic shows, uh, about like the Sega Genesis. Uh, like I have a pin, 
uh, old Sega Genesis promo pin that I got there. Uh, stuff like that, right? I mean, like tons of just old stuff like that. That if you're really into that, this stuff, that's uh, a lot of fun. And so that kind of got me excited about that again. I've had opportunities to set things up, uh, and I can play games with my kids because we we have a basement now. We actually like going into um, and stuff like that. And so that also got me to say, oh, you know what? I should start. I want to buy a few things that I have always wanted to have and never had a chance to. Um, so there are a few things that kind of, you know, I already had some things like, uh, you know, I have a, a Nintendo virtual boy, uh, Atari Jaguar, uh, um, I have like four different Sega Genesis CDs, uh, with, you know, 32X and the CD add on, a Saturn, um, and of course I got a PlayStation 1, 2, and 3, and, um, I have a Nintendo 64. I don't own a single Nintendo 64 game because I don't care about that console at all, but. But you, um, own, you own one, but don't have any games. Yeah, it's sort of a thing where you get to a point, it's like, I think it's interesting to own it and to have it. But I don't think it's particularly interesting to play it. I, I like there are no compelling games on that that platform for me. <laughs> I'm not excited about any of them. Um, it uh, I tend to be like for games, uh, older games. I tend to be into shooters and beat 'em up and stuff like that. I'm not much into like 3D platformers or stuff like that, and I'm not really into like one-on-one fighting games a whole lot. And that the, the N64, I kind of feel like was sort of all about that kind of stuff. Um, somebody talked about Goldeneye. A lot of people talk about Goldeneye 64. I've honestly never played it, but while, when Goldeneye came out, I was, I mean, Goldeneye is a first person shooter and I was into first person shooters on the computer and Goldeneye looked ridiculous and not good to me. Um, so I've just never been into console based like first person shooters, but obviously some people love the N64, but as somebody said here, Goldeneye defined the N64. That's probably why I wasn't all that interested in that <laughs> plot. I know. Um, when, I, when, I, when I played on console things, basically all I did was play sports games against my buddies. I didn't, yeah, play, I didn't right. play a lot of I can't even think of it. I'm trying to think of because I owned uh, uh, a Nintendo and never got the Nintendo 64, Sega Genesis. After a while, I traded that in. And then I didn't get another console until I bought uh, a Wii for here at the house. And I know I'm saving up my um, points on my uh, points card that I have with at the big grocery store. Uh, they sell the Nintendo uh, Universe, the newer one. So I'm saving up all my points. Normally, I cash in the points to get like money off of the groceries. Oh, Tecmo Super Bowl. Hell yes. I still play Tecmo Super Bowl in emulators on my laptop. That's how much I love that game. Yeah, I'm, totally. I'm, I'm <coughs> oh, hold on. Saving up my, right I'm just coughing. I didn't want to cough all over you guys. And I'm saving up uh, to get the new Nintendo one to replace my, uh, replace the Wii. Yeah. Um, so I, I would, it would be here for a little bit for if I, if I listed off all the things we own, but I'm pretty sure that I own everything. Um, for, uh, uh a Nintendo Entertainment System and the Sega Genesis and every other console that was produced up until now, except I don't own a I don't own a Nintendo GameCube, but every uh, every one other one I I I, I own. Um, I also own uh, I think I said I own an Amiga 600, which I bought because I always wanted one when I was a kid and I couldn't, and I actually bought that like ten years ago off a guy and I got a monitor. Um, 
And uh, what else? Uh, I also really liked, uh, or, or I also, oh, um, I rebought a Commodore 64. I actually had a Commodore 64 for a while, and it's just been sitting in my box. Uh, or, or my closet, and when I hooked it up when we moved to the new place, it wasn't, it didn't turn on. It, it, it just is black when it, so the power comes on, but there's no video coming out of it. Um, and, uh, no, the, the I did get a, a, a Magnavox 13 inch CRT monitor with that Amiga 600, but it, it, uh, they are getting harder to find now, especially ones that have like direct RGB inputs. Um, this one does have some kind of RGB input, although I wasn't using it. Sorry, somebody in the, channel asked about that um uh, anyway so but i I, and i also bought an atari st something i was always interested in uh just recently uh and i bought that for like 75 dollars um you can get a lot of that stuff pretty cheap i mean some it kind of depends because now it's sort of a collective market and some stuff is just more expensive than others and some you know some software is more expensive than others too like uh i have a I have a sealed copy of Icaruga, which was a Dreamcast release. Um, it's still, I've never opened it because I intentionally didn't want to open it. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, was, uh, it's worth a fair bit of money, but not as much as some things I've seen, like Radiant Silver Gun for the Sega Saturn is literally hundreds of dollars. Um, like to, if you find one that's like, uh, still in, in, in box and stuff like that. Um, but nice thing, of course, you can get emulators for that stuff if you don't mind being a little bit, uh, uh, morally suspect on it. But one of the interesting things that I, I, I'm encountering is the issues of hooking up old systems to new TVs. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. I'm finding this out. We bought a, I bought a brand new TV for use in the basement and now I'm trying to hook up all the devices. I'm like, right. this dumbass TV, all it has is, it has two HDI inputs and, uh, one of the, you know, the yellow, white, red plug type deal. So composite, I, they yeah, call that uh, yeah. composite. So I can't hook up all my devices. I used to have, because we have a D, we have the set top box. I bought right. a, I bought a Roku three, a streaming media yep. device. Mm-hmm. So that's taking up one HD slot. And now I can either hook up the DVD player or the Wii. So I've been fat and lazy and not working out because the dvd player is plugged into the tv instead of the wii so yeah i'm finding this a problem too even something as i mean the wii is not that old it's four or five years old the only attachment i have for it is a uh is the composite one so and i don't have two composite inputs so i'm shit right. out of luck to have everything hooked up at yeah. once you just you just have to switch them um a couple other things that get into that too like there's a lot of those older devices that it they may only output um, like the worst case is if they only have an RF modulator yep. and they only output the thing that like you have to hook up a box and it used to be a switch box. Like you'd manually slot switch between like video game and, and, and TV and it would plug yeah, into your antenna input. I remember, doing right? that for my, okay. I remember doing that for Magic 20. Right. So I have a couple of those. So like the Commodore 64 I had, it, it, it mainly hooks up through that, but you, I bought a cable that some guys made that will connect from the RGB output of the Commodore 64, or I actually, I bought a Commodore 128 too. So, but the same deal will come out of the RGB output that's on the back of it and it will plug into a composite input. Um, that's not as good as if it was direct RGB, but it's, you know, easier to hook up to things. Direct RGB is actually really hard to like find. Um, and you have, and then what you, so you get into these issues, uh, 
where there's a lot of problems with with hooking up these old devices. Uh, like I bought I bought this Atari ST, right? And it only had the one I got doesn't have an RF modulator in it. Um, it just has an RGB out, and it is really basically there isn't a device that, as far as I've been able to find off the shelf, that I could just go buy and say this will connect my Atari ST up to something else, <laughs> other than like a if I bought an official like Atari monitor or something like that, or that took that RGB, uh, because the the Ataris have a weird like a thirteen pin RGB output that also carries the audio and and stuff like that. So. Um, but anyway, the problem you get into is that is you basically with these old devices, especially the less popular they were, um, you might have to actually solder up your own wires and like get into things where it's like, Oh, I have to figure out what the pinout is on this stuff and actually make my own wiring so I can connect it to something else. And you also get into things where they have these, these, um, converter boxes that convert from like, like um, RGB into HDMI or RGB into component output or RGB into composite. Or the other thing they might do is they might, you, you'll get things that uh, um, try to do like auto scaling of, of inputs. One of the problems you have with the old, uh, these old devices is that they generally output 240p output. So 240 lines progressive. And, Newer TVs, newer like say flat screen TVs and stuff like that, these HD TVs do a really, really, really bad job of scaling up something like that. Like they do okay at something at like a 480p, like a DVD or something like that, but 240p, they just look really bad. Um, it looks fuzzy and it, like you don't really get this. It doesn't look very good at all. It's not, it feel clear. It doesn't. So, they, because they do a really bad job of scaling up something that small, um, and so there's a lot of devices now that they'll do things like uh, that will scale up the frames. They're they're dedicated hardware devices just to do that kind of thing, uh, and then um, which can vary in price a lot. Uh, and then there's also things that will uh, that'll that that people will do to actually like input to make it. It basically fake the scan line to get on a CRT. Right. You know, on a CRT, like it shoots like photons, whatever the fuck it does, across or, or uh, it shoots this, this stuff across the screen, and that's how it draws the screen. It draws it every you know sixty times a second by shooting this gun of you know energy, and uh, it it makes lines across the screen. Well, it's you know they'll actually get these devices that four scan lines on top of this or into the picture because that way they look more like they were supposed to look. Um, there's a really good device. Um, of course, that's only made in Japan called the XRGB mini frame Meister, which is like the, like the best frame scaler that you'd want to get. And you can put a lot of stuff into it and it'll output HDMI. Oh, cool. Um, it's really cool, but it costs like five hundred dollars. Well, I can <laughs> um, see why. Yeah, so it but it works really well. There's like almost no delay in it, which is a big thing. Like you can imagine, it's got, it has to do with processing, so it's gonna it may introduce latency. Um, so uh, but it doesn't seem to. Um, really super cool device, but it's one of those things that you have to be pretty dedicated to spend that kind of money. But I'd say I've I've got like probably twenty. 
I guess now consoles and old game and, and old computers and just it sounds to me Ed, like stuff. it's time yeah. to plunk down the five Benjamins and get that thing. <laughs> I think my wife told me that we had to do a couple other things first, like buy a grill and uh, a, a new bed. Uh, but um, so I'm going to have to lay off for a little bit. But yes, okay, next week then. Yes, maybe next week I'll do that. <laughs> so, uh, but yes, that would be a lot of fun. Uh, that because a device like that would just let you hook up the hardware the other thing you do though is just is getting really into emulation stuff and, uh, and the one thing i'll say quick because i know we're running out of time is there's it since a lot of us i know as developers were working on osx um there's a really cool there's a lot of cool emulation stuff there but for osx sometimes it's not as easy as we'd like it to be um there's a cool project called open emu emu i want to say open emu <laughs> uh, and uh it, they are basically working on, I guess essentially what it is, is it's a OSX-like front end for emulation. Um, and you can actually go, it's the project's on GitHub, and you can download the code and then compile it in Xcode and get it running. And it works really well, actually. Cool. So it's worth checking out. It's sort of like if you look if you looked at Boxer, which was basically a an OSX friendly version of DOSBox. Yes, um, I heard of Boxer. It's sort of it's sort of like that for console emulation. Oh, okay. uh, so yeah, it's a it's a cool project. Like I said, it's open source. Um, it's uh, and and sort of smooths out a lot of stuff. So I I've been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, XMAME is the thing that I use. Uh, use that right. quite a bit. Works out right. quite well. All right, on to our next topic. Yes, the whole console stuff is so cool, and you're right. As time goes on, it becomes harder and harder to find ways to hook these consoles and stuff up to your various uh, devices. Like I said, I was complaining about, you're right, I have to switch things, but it's at the back of the TV and being lazy. It's like, man, every time I want to put the Wii on, I have to unplug that thing and plug something else, and that gets to be a hassle. So, I don't know, maybe I'll look and see if there's... Some other uh, things. I just did a quick search while we were talking, and I saw on eBay, you can get things that will convert that component video stuff uh, to HDMI. So it's just a case of finding the right cable if you really want to go through with it. All right. right. So our our third of four topics for tonight. So as everybody who's in the channel probably knows we've been paying attention this past week, uh, it turns out that some... Uh, some gentleman who was working as a contractor for the uh, U.S. National Security Agency decided to leak a whole bunch of information to various newspapers about what they've been up to uh, in terms of um, surveillance. So it turns out the scope of surveillance uh, has been much, much broader <clears throat> excuse me, than people had originally anticipated. Now, me, I can, as a Canadian, of course, I'm not subject to any of U.S. laws, so I'm pretty sure they've probably been scooping in everything I've been talking about. Uh, not that I'm talking about anything that's that important, but it got me to thinking today about if you really wanted to, if you wanted to make yourself as snoop-proof as possible, what are the things that you'd have to do? So I know some of my paranoid friends may be interested in some of this information that I've been thinking about. So... Uh, of course, the, the first thing is these cloud services, most of them being U.S. controlled and most of them, because this is the weird thing that I was thinking about, Ed, that the problem that comes up is that the U.S. government passes laws and creates organizations internally and then forces basically corporate entities to go along with them. And they, they pass the laws by saying that, and you're also not allowed to t- tell anybody that we're doing this stuff. So that puts these entities in a really bad position, Google, Facebook, all these guys. Clearly, they're serving data up basically on demand when presented with um, the appropriate legal stuff. And I understand, and they have to follow. They have to follow the law, but they're in a weird spot that they they want to say yes, that we're we are providing access, uh, lawful access when required. 
And a lot of them seem to say that they wish the, the process was a little bit more transparent so that they could actually talk about it. But so mm-hmm. got me thinking with, with all this information being sucked in, if you do want to kind of be snoop proof, and I want to just clarify all this by saying I'm not engaged in any kind of activity that people should be worried about. So I'm not some anarchist or plotting the overthrow of a government. It's just like, man, as far as I'm concerned, what I'm doing is my business and I'm not worried about what I'm doing. I'm worried about false positives and getting sucked in to an investigation based on, based on a really like super casual acquaintance with somebody once. And all of a sudden, because all this data gets sucked in, we're programmers. We know how bullshit most algorithms are. I don't want my life being screwed over. Uh, being screwed over because uh, because I said something to somebody once and all of a sudden I'm a suspect. And the problem is when you get accused of something, it never goes away. It's always there lurking around the background. Somebody somewhere knows that you got sucked in. So if people wanted to like stay away from this stuff, I started thinking about it. If I wanted to take uh, as much control of my online identity as possible, how would I go about doing this? So, so we had the first problem. All my mail, both my personal mail and well, my personal mail for the two main accounts that I used is all through Google. So I'd have to get that stuff out of there. I'd have to stop using Gmail and stop using Google uh, Google for domains. I don't even know what the heck you call that thing, but all I know is like my littleheart.net mail all goes through Google. So I'd have to export all my stuff out there. I'd have to run a server somewhere else. And this is not enough too because my VPS that I have is in the US, so I'd have to find a Canadian one. But do I want a VPS because then the company could conceivably have a backdoor that they would make open to uh, lawful or slightly unlawful access. So I'd actually have to have a server co-located somewhere and then make sure nobody has root. I'd have to have all my mail on there. And then I started getting other levels of paranoia. Am I going to have to try to find a mail server solution where everything is encrypted, that the email when it comes in is written encrypted to disk and it's unencrypted when I want to read it? So you can kind of see where I can, where I'm going with this. Ed, yeah. right? It's like you could like really get down to mindfuck levels of trying to protect yourself. It seems to me like the best yeah. thing. It seems, it seems to me, I think a, a perhaps a, a medium term solution because I am a very public person because I'm trying to sell products. It's pretty hard to hide online and sell stuff to people. This, this I kind of figured out very early on. So, yeah. so it kind of seems a solution be share what you want to be known publicly. That's okay. Stuff that you don't want to be public. Well, keep that stuff off of cloud services. If you're really concerned about people with your little browser habits, install Tor, the onion really install Tor on your laptop. If you want to surf for stuff, uh, surf stuff anonymously, use Tor. Don't use it to log into any services because then they'll know that you're using Tor and you may expose yourself as not being as being no longer anonymous. Um, It's basically, I mean, I know it seems right that a lot of people are kind of being smirking about it and saying, oh, you're surprised the generation that lives online is surprised that the government is tracking. I don't think that people are surprised that the government is tracking people. I think people are surprised at the scope that instead of being, I have no, personally, I have no problem with very highly targeted surveillance of people online, but it just kind of seems the tactic now is just, we're going to suck everything in everything that we can get our hands on and we'll sort it out later. We'll search through it at our own convenience to find things that we disagree with. So even retroactive punishment for people is something possible. If, if the U S national security agency has everybody's email, and apparently they have every phone call. If you're a Verizon customer, they've been storing your phone calls for who knows how many years, all the metadata, which as any programmer knows, you can learn almost as much from the metadata as you can from the actual content. They can know who you called and when, and they can see the sequence of calls. And it's not that hard to figure out based on a sequence of calls. And if you know who was called to kind of figure out what's going on. So, so that's the thing, like, uh, you know, I'm not worried. I'm just worried about guilt by association. I'm worried about false positives. If you have the records of millions and millions of people being sucked in, 
and you have a false positive rate on this data mining of, I don't know, half a percent, that's still hundreds of thousands of people getting flagged as being problematic. And I don't know about you, but that's the type of thing that kind of worries me. Just like somebody, somebody somewhere decides something you said five, six years ago is offensive. It wasn't offensive at the time. It wasn't even radical at the time at all. But it's in there because they have the world's biggest uh, um, data store and they're trolling around. Yeah. And really, when you think about it, they have to justify all these billions that have been spent. So it's not going to be long before they start, before they're going to start looking for problems and manufacturing problems. And that's the thing that bothers me the most. And of course, being Canadian, I have no say in this at all, right? If my shit's being snooped, I have no recourse because I'm not American. And my own government here in Canada has the same sort of laws on the books, same sort of things. Basically, anytime they say something to a company, a Canadian company under penalty of huge legal fines and other stuff has to cough up the data. But the Canadian government itself does not have an organization that's busy dedicated to tapping every phone call and recording everything just in case they need it later. Well, at least as far as you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I obviously, uh, isn't it, I mean, that's the nature of, of life, but particularly in our society, uh, as it is now is that, I mean, you only know what you can actually confirm. Otherwise it's all just, you know, you're just trusting somebody. Right. Um, I, I, I think the I think the thing that's particularly probably disturbing about this is that it's not necessarily that, uh, you know, it's one thing if uh, they go to somebody with a warrant and say, hey, we need to find the logs related to this, uh, this particular person yeah, that's on like, your service. I, that, dude, that's, totally that, that. Yeah, that, I think that's relatively normal and, and understandable. Um, the you know, automatic collection of stuff, warrantless, essentially it's warrantless wiretapping on a massive scale um, uh, to see if to troll, to see if you'll find something. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting that some, you know, there's some, some uh, organizations that are saying, no, we don't do that. Um, I'm curious to know whether the, say the corporations are just lying about that or alternately, uh, is it the case that they maybe have the, that the NSA just has taps w- between um, internet providers? I think the wording uh, of the denials is what's important because they've all said that they've every company that's been mentioned has basically said the same thing. Mm-hmm. No, we are not providing direct access. But other people have said, yeah, that's true. They're not. What they do is they set up access for law enforcement. They have a separate. They have in some cases it's just basically a web. It's a mm. website. They go to this website. Yeah. They log in and say, I'm looking for all information about this user on your system or, or, you know, messages emanating from this IP address. And this system that, you know, Facebook has built one, Google has built one, I'm sure other places have built it, coughs up the information for them. So it's true. They right. don't have direct access. Or they could also say that they're fibbing and that they don't have direct access. They, they just store everything. They don't look at it in real time. It's all, it's all about the wording because when you see things that, that various members of the government had said in the context of what's come out, you could say, yes, technically what they said is correct. But if you read between the lines, it's clear that they were lying, that what they said wasn't, they knew what they were saying wasn't the truth, but they said it. And of course they could just be lying as well. If these companies are under, if the companies are not allowed to talk about what the government's doing on their systems, then what recourse does the company have? They have to say something like, no, they have to lie. They have to lie because otherwise there's humongous penalties for telling the truth. Yeah. So, and ultimately, I mean, when we talk about 
I mean, it, it, when we talk about, say, utilizing services, cloud services, any kind of hosting services of, it, of any sort that we don't have direct control over, you're trusting somebody else to do that, whether it, you're trusting them to, say, keep not do stuff that you wouldn't want them to do with your data, um, and whether that's, you know, allow warrantless access to the government or for them to uh, just steal stuff themselves and fool around with it, you don't know. I mean, you don't really know. It, it could be a malicious employee. It could be, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of things, right? So it's, you, I guess you can't be 100% secure. Um, you can kind of keep your head down and uh, make it a little less likely somebody's going to mess with you, <laughs> right? So, I mean, so clearly it's like if there's the public stuff that I do, that's all public anyway, but I'm starting to think that if I'm going to start just doing aimless things or look at topics that may be just even slightly controversial, it's time to break out the anonymizing stuff so I can go and look and feel that, uh, feel for the most part, um, I'm not getting snooped on as I try to learn more about things that I find interesting that are slightly controversial. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I can understand that. I, I can't blame you. <laughs> right. Can't blame you. I think I think you're. Uh, I think there's there's good reason to be worried. Besides, when I look at all the stuff I have to do, it's like, yeah, I'm going to get a server and co-locate it. I'd have to find someplace in Canada, install the server, install mail, and cut everything over. Don't go on Gmail anymore. Don't go on Google Talk. Be careful. Don't do. Be careful what I say in, in DMs on Twitter. I mean, it's just endless. I'm of course. Yeah. Have, it's like, do I have the discipline to do all that, man? Probably, but man, do I really want to go through all that? all that work just so that the odd time I want to look for something really sketchy online. I'm not going to get hassled. It's, it's tough to say, very tough to say. Um, okay. So let's move on to the final topic. I think for tonight where, uh, Ed wanted to ask me, because, um, for those who follow me on Twitter, they might know, and some of my coworkers are actually here in the channel, how I've been transitioned to another team. And some, I complained to my boss. I felt it was punishment detail. And he assured me that it was not. And I should tell him who said it was punishment detail. Um, been transferred to a new team that's actually doing mostly Python stuff. Um, so uh, this will be a chance where I'm going to be mostly, for the most part, any new things that I do at work are going to be in Python for the time being. So um, in some way, that's kind of good because I'd wanted to use Python for a while. I used Python at a previous job, but it's been a while since I did anything kind of substantial with it. So that's kind of cool. Um, I still have to kind of shepherd that PHP 5.4. And at the pace it's going... When I found out that probably it's not going to happen until like January of next year, the migration, I'm like, well, maybe we should try to aim for PHP 5.5 and stay even one more step ahead because 5.5 will be stable by then in another six months, I would think. So maybe I'll push hard for that to happen. Um, yeah, transition. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, I don't know what else to call it. Um, so the thing that was interesting is that the system that I'm working on is like from a startup that Cinecore bought. And so this technology called Carbon. And so the idea is supposed to be like kind of mobile, more mobile friendly. So kind of HTML, JavaScripty on the front end and Python stuff on the back end, I think is probably the best way to describe it. So one of the interesting things that, of course, before I can do anything else, I had to get a development server set up. And this is, this is where you learn the lessons of what happens when you don't start off with the idea of automated repeatable processes. It basically took all week for them to get me to get everything all lined up. So I could create a virtual machine to use as a as a development server. Um, yeah, and for those who know me, must know how incredibly frustrated I was with all that because they had they had only when when they 
they used to not have a lot of info on how to create one of these things. It was all kind of custom hand-rolled. And then one of our more heroic sysadmins has been transitioned over to the team as well. So he's been doing a good job of kind of documenting the process of spinning everything up. But there's still too much... Uh, there's still too much manual stuff. There's actual things like where you have to do curl calls uh, from the command line and a bunch of other things just to get the whole environment um, set up. So, um, so my thing is always like repeatable stuff. Um, no, it's not Mr. Bishop or one of our coworkers there. It's not uh, Dave Bishop. It's somebody else. Russ Crandall. Um, these names mean nothing to other people on the podcast. This, so. is, fa- this is fascinating to all of our listeners. It, it might as well be Fatty McTubberton, the guy's name for all <laughs> yeah. that matters. Um, but it just impressed upon me about how important it is to really, from the beginning when you're building something, that you want to have the process of just creating an environment for your application to run in should be automated. The fact that the fact that we have to run things on the command line and it spits out a token and we have to cut and paste the value of this token and stick it into another file and source and then do a uh, stick it in your bash RC file and then source it and then run this other thing and then run this other command and do all these things manually. It just, it drives me nuts because it's like, uh, and given that the project is fast moving and they didn't have an, they in the past have not had an emphasis on making sure everything's a hundred percent bulletproof when they move forward. Right. I mean, this is very typical. It's a very, still very much a startupy. Uh, type of environment, and that's one of the reasons. And this is the weirdest thing ever: being told by your boss that you're being brought in to help them not be so disorganized. Because I'm not exactly the most organized guy, but I guess in terms of like wanting to nail down processes that lead to repeated success, I'm pretty good at those. So it, it kind of made me chuckle to say, like, I'm basically saying you're being brought in to help be like adult supervision as they as they integrate their as they integrate themselves more into how Cinecore does everything. Because we have all sorts of really cool tools to kind of help manage the flow of work, things to automatically kick off tickets and, and, and initialize branches and just to, even to do stuff like code reviews, automated code reviewing. I had an idea today to try to modify. We have a code scanner um, component to our review that will look for everything. And one of the things in the review tool I was, I was going to want to find out um, was, hey, I know that we, we automatically sniff to see if there's unit tests in PHP for something. We should be extending this to also look and see if we have unit tests available for something in Python because we are writing um, tests uh, for the code in Python. And I believe the last uh, number I heard was 55% code coverage, which is pretty good. I'm concerned that they had 0% maybe about three or four months ago. So, yeah, that's, that's um, pretty good. so I'm thinking I want to move towards that stuff. Um, uh, see if I can hack on that tool. That'll do the same thing. Snoop around and say, hey, we have a unit test. Uh, there's unit tests available for this thing. Do you want to run it and make sure that it passes? But the whole thing is like all these all these things about automation. So, so many developers think nothing of of repeatedly typing commands into a shell to accomplish something. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm getting crankier in addition to being grumpy. It's like, man, I don't want to repeatedly type things over and over again. Um, I don't want to have to scroll through my um, through my shell history to find a command. So I'm telling the other people here, work super hard to make sure that you have repeatable processes uh, in place. So I, I was, I'm kind of curious, Ed, at, uh, at the best startup ever there, um, how are you guys for this sort of stuff? Are most of your things when you need to spin up environments to work on stuff? Uh, I know you guys use Vagrant, but uh, once the Vagrant boxes are set up, are they all predefined? You just basically say, I want like uh, to, to use a project. I don't know if, if you guys are even working on it anymore, but like a done, not done. I want a done, not done development box. Yeah, is, right. Is, is it as simple as that? You can say, I want a done, not done, and you, you, yep. you, get, you get your little Vagrant box and it's ready to go? Yeah, they use Puppet. And uh, so... 
um, yeah, they use Vagrant and Puppet together so that it builds the environments, uh, for everything, you know, automatically. And, uh, and yeah, so they've totally bought into that. Like that automation, uh, probably way more than like testing. Uh, but that automation has happened and has, has worked out really well. That's, uh, and that is mostly, uh, Sean, you know, started off doing Sean Coates and then, uh, Joelle, uh, Paris did, uh, has been, uh, working on with us, uh, in DevOps, uh, for, uh, well, a year, year and a half now. But, um, so, uh, but so yeah, your, they've your, invested your in that heavily. What? My boyfriend's what? I say your, your boy, Sean, he's, uh, he's going to be doing the keynote at, uh, True North this year. I've asked is him he, to why do didn't it. you give me the keynote? Cause you're crazy. I'm gonna have a crazy guy do my keynote. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't, you can't have that. Um, yeah, uh, Sean, uh, has learned a ton about this stuff and is really good at it. Uh, so he, uh, he's, he's done a lot of really good stuff with our, um, our setups of our development VMs and our production machines. Um, or, or I guess yeah, production I VMs, the, really. I, I, I uh, see him ranting doing, all the time about doing Ruby stuff. Yes, uh, I think he would probably argue that the, the, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, but there's, he's, uh, he's certainly been, uh, frustrated with, uh, I think really just Ruby interpreter stuff has been bothering him, but he'd have to speak to that more than I could. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, yeah, he, he does all that stuff in puppet and, uh, that, uh, has, uh, yeah, yeah, he bought into that really heavily. So we do a lot of that stuff, which I, I don't know, man, I just type in a couple commands and it magically works. I don't know. That's what, that's, that's the Holy grail. That's what you need. Yeah. We, I asked Sean to come and talk about building distributed apps with a distributed team. Cause I thought he had a very unique um, perspective on all that, that he could, uh, could share with uh, people at the conference. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So yeah, automate, like people are always like someone in the channel because the scroll back's getting pretty good here, but I was talking about, um, it, it's funny that all this stuff seems magical. Um, to people who haven't considered it. I mean, many people assume that there's all sorts of things that cannot be automated, but essentially with Puppet and other things in Chef, depending on uh, which way you swing, um, you can accomplish a ridiculous amount of things for, for setting stuff up. And I would, one of these days, I'm really hoping one of these days that we can spin up a development box for the project at work. And with one command on the server, it takes care of everything for you. It should be able to do. It's just a question of always allocating resources and giving someone the time to say, I want this one person to spend two weeks getting everything working automated. And I'm pretty sure if you would give somebody a time frame like that, they could, they could make it work. So, uh, yeah, I think so. So Mr. Finkel, we're almost at the end. Anything else you want to talk about or further comment, uh, any ideas, uh, pounding around in the head based on what we talked about today? Not really. I'm just playing a lot of like Japanese shoot 'em up games. Um, I came across a good one today called, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Dimahu, D-I-M-A-H-O-O, and that's pretty awesome. So uh, if you're into that kind of thing, so what system is that on? It's a MAME thing, so it's an arcade. I don't oh, think it was okay. ever. I don't think it was ever ported to a home console. Okay, so uh, but that was a really good shooter. Um, I'm really into shooter games like that, and uh, that one was really good. Uh, and I never heard of it before. I just came across it. Today. I will have to after this is over. I'll have to find where that is because um, yeah, because you talked about the console stuff a while ago. I probably told you about this. I bought this big, humongous controller specifically for arcade games called the X Arcade. It's this big, humongous, like 15, 20 pound thing that has like that analog eight stick and like about 12 buttons 
And it is awesome for doing meme stuff because for most of the most of the games are, are mapped with multiple buttons. So I was able to like play all sorts of crazy fighting games. Like you can play Mortal Kombat with it, and you can do combo moves. Like there's a wrestling game I play, you can program the buttons to do moves for you and stuff. It's really really cool. Um, nice. Yeah, the X arcade. I'll have to I'll have to take a picture of it and send it to you, Ed, so you can kind of see it's a very, it's it's yeah. it's USB powered and also has like a PS2 connector. It uh, it acts as a keyboard. So, so you can actually, so you can program your emulator to say like the letter Q is up and that actually translates to on the, on the player one stick when you push up, it's, it's Q. So it can, yeah, sort of- that way it, it doesn't need a special driver. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's yeah. a, I have, uh, I've just been using a, a generic GameStop labeled Xbox controller. That's a, a, a plug-in, not a wired controller. It's an Xbox 360 controller, but a guy wrote a, a driver for OSX for the Xbox 360 controllers. Oh, cool. So, um, it's just an open source thing, but, uh, it works and it works pretty well with stuff. So I can, I can use that and that works pretty well. You know, it's got, it's not optimal for everything. Um, but uh, most games, it works pretty well with it. Yeah, uh, when you uh, when you come up in November, I'll have to show the thing to you. I'll, I'll lug it to the conference. We can set up on one of the. We'll get a projector and set things up and play some uh, main games on the on on the big projector. That'd be kind of awesome. Oh yeah, we could just put it all on like one laptop, and I've got like a big main set we could run. So yeah, totally we, we just need a really big screen to project it onto. That's all. Yep. You don't, you don't you don't want everyone crowded around one little uh, one little laptop. Um, so I think we've reached the end. Episode Trey Trey Double Three. Thanks to everyone who joined us in uh, Free Note. Conversation is always good. Uh, yeah. I apologize for the in jokes and dropping names of people that I work with because again, it means absolutely nothing to the people who are listening. Um, and also, we want to thank our awesome sponsor, um, Engine Yard, um, uh, Davy Shafiq. Uh, guy involved in the PHP community. He's now on the community team and he helped kind of, uh, he helped get some of this stuff going. And, um, along the way, as part of our sponsorship, we're also going to be doing, um, the odd blog post. I know that we have to do another one coming up pretty soon, I would think, uh, for them after I did one where we kind of talked about testing stuff for a little bit. But, um, I thought that I have some ideas I'm going to talk to you about afterwards, Ed, because you can write this one. Um, so uh, thanks to Engine Yard. Fine, fine purveyors of platform as a service. If you are into, if you want to run your code on a scalable sandbox, whether you're doing Ruby, you're doing Node stuff, and you're doing, of course, if you're doing PHP, uh, check them out. They were one of the first ones out there. I still think they're probably one of the better options for you if you want to, if you like running your stuff in a scalable sandbox. So um, I think that's it. So as as always, thank you to everyone for listening. You can find us uh, online on Twitter uh, at dev underscore hell. If you go to devhell.info, you can find every single episode that we ever done and you can listen to it along with show notes uh, for every single episode i think we only missed one because neither of us was paying attention um <laughs> we're on itunes please 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 go to itunes and rate us let us know what you like let us know what you don't like uh we can't always promise to change things but we do listen we are interested in providing as much entertainment as possible uh so you can find me online on twitter i'm grumpy programmer without Without the U, you can find Ed. He is Fungatron with the U. Thanks so much, and we'll see you guys next time on episode 34. Good night, Internet.